Welcome to the seventh episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I write, speak, and create art about sexual ethics in general and polyamory and non-monogamy specifically. And I've been practicing polyamorous for probably nine years. And hi, my name is uh, Sarah Lucas. I am your co-host. I am a student at the Wolfram University, um, studying consensual non-monogamy and child rearing, and I have been a practicing polyamorous for a little over a year. And joining us today, we have a guest host returning for her second appearance, Mandy Conant. Hi, I am Mandy Conant. I am the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend, and I have been practicing polyamorous for 17 years now. And she's like both of us combined times two in terms of <laughs> practice. Oh, yes. Yes. You are definitely the authority, Mandy. Ooh, I would not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm experienced for sure, but I don't know about authority. Yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. All right. So quickly before we get into today's main topic, I wanted to list a couple of partial corrections from last episode two weeks ago on using autonomy and other rights discourse inside of the interpersonal relationship sphere. At some point during that episode, we, we pivoted to using autonomy only in the context of invocation inside of that sphere, but we didn't note it. And so it almost sounds like we're against autonomy. We're not against autonomy. We're very much for it. It's something you should watch out for, that you should safeguard in yourself. We are just simply making the claim that consent can replace any useful evoking of autonomy between individuals, so that in a relationship you don't need to do that. To tie into that, the key phrase that I forgot to use is that that form of autonomy use often leads to gaslighting. So people are using autonomy to say, you can't be mad at me and undermine your emotional experience by claiming that it, it, there's a, a rights basis that doesn't allow you to have that emotional experience to invalidate you, and that's a form of gaslighting, and that is the problematic thing we are worried about. And finally, I noticed when I was editing the final uh, copy that I, I say something like, I'm glad people are finally noticing that cops aren't necessarily just automatically the good guys, and I wanted to correct that and say, white America on the news America is noticing and actually saying something about it, not that minorities have not noticed and have not been saying something about it, as that is something that has always been happening. So I, I definitely wanted to, to correct that. So today's topic is objectification. This is a term that I hope you've all heard, although as I've been talking to people about this episode, I've actually had people say, I don't know what that word means, or even they haven't heard that word before, which is crazy to me. I don't know how anybody hasn't heard that before. I guess, though, I had not thought of objectification, or dare say I probably had never heard of objectification before um, I got involved in a feminist group in which we discussed it, mentioned it at least once every meeting that we had um, weekly. So I guess I can kind of understand. I mean, I was in a very conservative place in my life before I joined this feminist group, and I, I was around very conservative people. So I guess I can see why some individuals may not have heard that, not to condone or not to um, to bash conservatives, but I'm not saying that all conservatives are like that. I'm just saying in the, the where I was in my family and my life at the time, I don't know that I'd ever heard of it. 
Or maybe know it exists and just not have a have a word for it. What I wanted to ask before we got too far into anything is for each of us to take a moment and say the definition of objectification that we had in mind or in our mind before we did any of the research for this podcast, which for those of you listening at home mostly consisted of reading a 1995 article by Martha Nussbaum titled Objectification, as well as reading the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on feminist objectification. We also have a background on these topics outside of those articles, and some of us read additional articles, but those are the two core articles that all of us read, or at least perused, in preparation for this podcast. For me, objectification is viewing a person as something that is not a person. In the terms of sexuality, that would be seeing them for their breasts or their penis or their hair or whatever it is that you like about them and not connecting that to who the individual is, not seeing past those to whom the person is. That was the working definition that I had of objectification before I read some of the articles that that I have in preparation for this podcast. It never dawned on me that there were different types of objectification, nor did it dawn on me that in one of the articles I read had said that objectification might be something that is positive for sexuality, that maybe it's more natural than we would like to think it is, and that it doesn't have to be bad, which I thought was fascinating. And we can discuss that a little later in the episode. Objectification for me is, within the word, treating someone like an object less than a person. Because we, I think that we find that uh, objectification not just in in sexuality, but you know, in, in racism as well, and also in the kink community where we we fetishize people, which is a form of objectification as well. Right, well, and that comes up a lot in these articles, actually, and that's sort of the one of the questions about if that's a place where objectification can be used positively because of the way that it's consenting in going into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that there are positive ways to use it and also, you know, of course, many negative ways as well. So Mandy, I know you have a very unique experience with your romantic uh, relationships in that you do have a biracial relationship with one of your husbands. You had mentioned that it, the objectification for you that you've seen involves race. Can you elaborate on how you've seen objectification? Um, yeah, absolutely. Are are you speaking about the the couple that fetishized my husband? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I can remember yes, that's where if, I was if going. I told you that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, my husband is one of my husbands is black. He kind of found himself in the situation where he found a couple that wanted. He's in the kink community as well that wanted to play. And he didn't realize that they were objectifying him. They very much played up things that were I'm trying to figure out how to say it. <laughs> that that were very akin to um, acts of slavery. Oh. And he, in all honesty, didn't see a problem in it in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then he came home and he was telling me about what happened and I was just appalled. Mm-hmm. And he went, oh my God, that is what happened. Wow. 
Yeah, he just he didn't even realize what was happening, and the couple very much just objectified him for his skin color, which is a, a negative, of course, way that we see it in the kink community as opposed to the positive ways. Right, and interestingly, that was actually one of the things the in the question for the very first episode where we were covering why having a racial preference for like a different race sexually is actually a problem and not a compliment. That sort of fetishization, yes, that sort of objectification where when people try and make it sound like it's a natural thing, like I'm not racist, I'm not fetishizing, I just enjoy X race, you know, more than other races and you're going I don't think that's right. <laughs> I think there's something Yeah. Off there. Yeah. So I'm going to jump back a little bit and, and do my before research objectification thought. My focus on objectification is in the existentialist, the existentialist genesis of the term, where it's about the idea that a human being is a sort of a living possibility, is the existentialist sense of what a human being is. You're not fixed until you're dead. You're constantly changing and growing and you can be or do anything going forward. Even your past actions are not who you are. It's a rejection of this idea that like what you've done so far is who you are and that you can't be anything other than that. And objectification is one way in which we deny that truth about humans. So we say something like, that person isn't a person, they're a waiter. And we ascribe them the qualities of waitership instead of the qualities of humanity. And this is what allows us to berate a waiter for being late, right? So people ask, well, why is it, you know, it's a really common thing, right? When you go on a date, if someone's rude to the serving staff, that's not a good sign. And the reason why is because it's a form mm -hmm. of objectification. They're willing to take a person and turn them into a tool. And if the, the tool fails to function as the tool is supposed to, they treat it the way that they would treat a broken object instead of the way that you should treat a person. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. That's a great definition. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. That's interesting. I never really thought about that. Yeah, everyone knows that's bad, but no one's like, why is... I mean, no one knows why that's bad. It's just a bad sign, or it seems mean, but it's not exactly clear, but that's the why. And the, the general thrust of existentialist philosophy and then later feminist philosophy around objectification is the idea that the more you do it, the more used to doing it you become. So a person that will objectify waiters and other you know members of the service community is going to objectify you is going to objectify mm -hmm. themselves, right? Objectification comes back at you as well. So when people, then this is you know, another thing you see where people say, you know, when you ask someone who they are and they just tell you about their job and how much money they make and the things that they accomplish. When you get in the habit of objectifying, it's easier to objectify other things. And that's the reason it's important right. to always avoid it. Yes. <laughs> just yes. <laughs> And, and so that was my <laughs> my background. But the, the thing that the Newsbomb article added for me was breaking out major features that people normally identify as being how you can tell that objectification is happening in sort of like a day-to-day -day metric. Because obviously denying someone as a, an innate possibility is a hard thing to quantify. The The list was, and this is, this is I'm going to pull this list from the... Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's summary, so it's in the same order they have there if you guys want to go there. By the way, anyone that's listening, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is a wonderful resource for any philosophical concept you want a high-level entry on, and it will note like what kind of articles you should go look at and read more if you want to know more about it. 
we use it a lot as just a starting point to make sure we're on the same page. And, and so here they have the, the seven objects or that Newsbomb identifies, and then an additional three added later by Ray Langton in 2009 article. So number one, instrumentality, which I think is pretty self-explanatory, but it's using someone as a as a tool for whoever the person who's objectifying whatever their purpose would be. Two is denial of autonomy. So if you don't allow someone to have their autonomy. Three is inertness. So that's treating someone as if they are inert, like an, an object would be. Four is fungibility. Fungibility was a more complex one, which is just the idea that the person is interchangeable with other people that have similar components. So in the, in the previous example from Mandy, if that couple only cared that they're with a black partner and it only mattered it was a black, maybe male partner, but not who that black partner was, as in the actual human being, then they're sort of committing the problem of fungibility, where they're treating him as an object in the sense that he's replaceable or interchangeable with anyone else that has certain specific physical characteristics. And I would have to agree that that's exactly what happened. Fileability, which just means that you don't respect the partner's boundaries. Ownership is a really obvious one, but one that doesn't come up very often anymore in the people who will be listening to this podcast. But it means literally owning people. So slavery is objectifying innately. And then denial of subjectivity, which is where you act like a person's perspective is not important. So only my perspective is important, your perspective isn't important, and this is sort of where gaslighting is objectifying, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say, oh, your perspective is wrong, here's the real perspective, my perspective, you're doing this denial of subjectivity. And then the three additional ones that were added by Langton are reduction to body, which is treating someone just as a specific body part or naming them as a specific body part, reduction to appearance, and silencing, which I think those three are kind of rolled into the ones above, honestly, but those are easy call-outs where if you see those things happening, you just know this has probably got objectification going on. Those were a little more relatable to me, actually. Now, what would be the difference between reduction to body and reduction to appearance? The big thing about reduction to body is it's often reducing to specific body parts. So the, and this might even be where, you know, the, the positive, but, you know, where, where you might simply call someone like a specific body part, like, hey, where's my pair of tits? As opposed to okay. reduction to appearance, which is like, you're important because you're pretty. Hmm. Oh, okay. Like arm candy. Right. Yeah. Like if you call someone arm candy or you say sort of looksism, I'd say reduction to appearance is a form of basically looksism. Huh. So if you're rating people's value on how attractive they are, so like the, whenever, you know, when, when, when you get... I don't want to say every guy, because I don't think guys are doing this as much anymore, I hope. I think we're actually moving forward as a culture. But when I was a child, every guy had the 1 to 10 attractiveness scale for women. Right? So when you'd be like, ooh, you met a new girl, what's she like? She's a 4. Like, that's objectification. They really did that? Wow, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... Everyone I knew did that. I I mean, I I feel bad about it now. I totally use the the 10, 1 to 10 scale, but I don't use it, it, like, in that context. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, this person was this attractive to me, and this is how I measure it based on me meeting him for the first time and how I saw his physical appearance. And here's an interesting note. In In all of my female friends, they have a single 1 to 10 scale that includes appearance and personality. Mm-hmm. And all of my male friends would do two different scales. That's so my guy friends would be like, she's a four attractiveness, but she's like a seven personality. So I'm really excited. <laughs> or something like that, right? But they, but they would okay. also do the other thing. Like, she's a nine, but she's like a two personality. Oh, So I'm not that excited. You know, I've noticed but, but that. But they, yeah. they were always separated. Huh. Yeah. Uh, 
right. But so, but you were talking about reducing the body parts as a as a separate element, and here's where some of the good stuff can happen, right? Because there's some really exciting BDSM play about reducing someone to body parts. You know that they get that label, but they've done all of the what they want the game to be in advance. They've done all of the consent in advance, that sort of setup. Right. Yeah. That makes it right. Well, consent based, basically. Yeah. Right. Like people who have like foot fetishes and things like that. You right. 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 Yeah. You have a wonderful pair of feet. You are a wonderful pair of feet. The, yeah. It, yeah. Exactly <laughs> that sort of. Sort of response. It makes me think of the the consensual non consensual too. Like if uh, if you don't know what consensual non consensual is, um, that is basically consenting to have a sexual experience in which, in the future, in which you are not consenting. Um, so mm. it's it's like a, a role play on rape almost is the way I've I've taken it. I could be totally wrong about that. So this consenting to be objectif- objectifying is kind of on the same lines in me. It's yes, you're consenting to be seen in a way that is sometimes viewed as a negative thing. Well, I mean, obviously rape is always viewed as a negative thing, but as objectifying can be used as a negative thing in order to have an arousal and to have an orgasmic experience. So, and with the consensual, non-consensual, it's the key is the consent and the trust that's there. And I think it's the same with the objectification in the kink community. It comes down to the consent as far as whether or not it's okay in that context, which is why it's accepted, I think, in the kink community to objectify in that way. Yeah, I'd have to completely agree with that. Do you want to say more? No, no, no. I'm just agreeing. (laughs) So what I wanted to say there was, and, and to set the stage for this, I'm going to say what I often say, which is I think that consent is the only barrier you need inside of interpersonal relationship, that that mm-hmm. will cover you for everything. Our, I think our interest in objectification is going to be two major pieces here, which one is objectification that people don't know that they're committing, so it can't be consented to, right? If neither partner knows and has agreed to this form of objectification, then it can't be something that, they're, that they have consented to. And then alternatively, objectification outside of your relationships, because right. the polyamorous community, as we all know, has a real problem with objectification still. That's one of our major issues, right? Around unicorns, around minorities. Oh, yeah. Around, right? We're, we're still a primarily white heteronormative group as much as we'd like to act like we're not. Yeah. And there's a lot of objectification, fetishization, and objectification in the sense of being horrified or terrified of uh, groups that are not part of that, that is sort of still rampant in the polyamorous community. And so that's going to be, that is going to be my concern along with unintended objectification primarily, I think. Does that seem right to you too? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yes. Really well, robust, informed consent is going to get around almost anything. Right. Right. Oh, that's the that's the only really, time yeah. that it makes it okay for sure. Yeah, and that's one of those ones where <laughs> to talk about the good sides of autonomy. You know, in the end, you can say there may be evidence that even then it's not healthy. There may be evidence that it isn't healthy, but there's no scientific consensus. And and outside of a scientific consensus, you have to give people their autonomy to make that decision. So you have to trust and their sort of robust consent is your best opportunity, like best guess at what they should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) I'm really interested in all these sort of built-in, non-discussed objectification in relationships. Which ones? What what do you mean? Well, you know, we're primarily polyamorous, I think, so primarily polyamorous relationships. But what do you mean, like, what forms of objectification? Oh, man. Where do you start? <laughs> Where do you right? start? So I, was listening, I was listening to this song. <laughs> this is one of the standard love songs, you know, and it's like 
everything she does is perfect, everything she does is right. Like, that's objectification. Ah. <laughs> you, you know, you've made an ideal object person that isn't really this person because there's no way those qualities exist in a human being. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you know, using them in your mind for something, right? Yeah. Or, um, right. Some really interesting questions of objectification come up around pornography. Obviously, there's a lot of people in the, the sex industry who are very, you know, very much enjoy being a part of the sex industry. And, you know, so they're they're consenting to be objectified in a sense. But then you ask the question, does that objectify other people? Right. So there's this very famous issue that happened when I think it's not even been mentioned in the newspaper article. I can't remember off the top of my head, but but I, I've read about it before where Playboy did a set of articles that were issues that were called Women of Ivy League, right? And they go to Ivy League schools and they do a, a call for girls who actually went to the school to come out, women who went to the school to come out and have their photo taken for Playboy, usually in, like, their shirt for that school. Then when they did that, of course, the women that came out and took their picture consented, but then a whole world of men read, you know, Women of Stanford, and fantasized about the sexual availability and promiscuity and attractiveness and availability of women of Stanford. Mm-hmm. None of the rest of the women at Stanford agreed. Right? I don't know if they actually did a Stanford one, but I think I think they did one for all the Ivy League. And so it's an interesting sense where that objectification gets. I mean, because that's, that's the whole thing, right? Is it's creating a class of people, so attractive right. women who went to Stanford, and then it's including right. that whole class. I think this goes back to. You know, what you were saying earlier about the the waiter, objectifying the, the waiter or waitress, that if you're going to objectify that person, you will objectify other people that way. So when you look at porn or go to a strip club and you're objectifying these women, whether they consent to it or not, um, which of, of course in most cases they are, it, you're still objectifying them and that can quite possibly lead to you objectifying other women who are not consenting in that yeah, way. Yeah, it creates a mentality in that that sense. Exactly. Yeah. You don't sound sure, Michael. No, I am. I, <laughs> I got distracted. I'm really... I, I always have a hard time walking the line of sort of between the, the, the really deeper philosophical questions that I'm kind of interested in and the stuff that any other sane human being that doesn't do this all day, every day is interested in. So I'm wondering about... So this is was the newspaper article that discussed the nature of Playboy, and they and she she frames Playboy as offering what that what makes it unique, what makes it sell, is that it it offers a certain better quote unquote it creates a idea of an object which is better class of women, and then offers that up for consumption to men, right? So knowing that that's okay. what the article does, does that create sort of a problematic? Is, is it problematic for the women who choose to participate? especially in specifically objectified issues like women of tennis, women of, you know, Brown University, women of Ivy League, women of... Because, I mean, especially at least at the article in Brown, which I guess was where, where she was, Newsman was actually teaching at the time, I think, there were protests on campus, the campus came together and voted on it, there was a consensus that they did not want to be represented that way, the women of the campus, and other women in the campus on their own decided to go ahead and do it. Right, and that's kind of what I was talking about, which is just like on a broader spectrum of women in general instead of just women in st- at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Whereas as the porn industry and strip clubs and things like that, you know, objectify women as a whole, uh, obviously consensually, but it creates 
that idea that you can objectify all women, like you're saying, like if you objectify the women that that posed for these this issue for as as stand girls at Stanford, right? Then that leads to people objectifying all girls at Stanford. Mm-hmm. So then that that begs the question: Where do you draw the line? Because if like, do you draw the line at whether or not you're being personal with these people? Like, in the fat life, if you were to objectify someone that you personally know, there is consent going both ways, and there's an understanding like, okay, this is not okay outside of this context unless you get consent from that other person. Whereas in this spread on Stanford girls, yeah, the girls that were participating were consenting, and the, obviously the people that were producing the, the material was consenting, but those that were being objectified on a larger scale were not consenting. So, I, I guess I, I kind of see your point. It's like... It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope, exactly. Like where... I, I, I was actually... I was just thinking of when we brought up the, the Ivy League people. I saw an article in one of my, my uh, texts from this last semester about these women who are being offered $25,000 for each like egg when they become an egg donor if they are an Ivy League female like a certain have these certain characteristics and the um like five foot five and Mm -hmm. you know got these grades and went to this school and this color hair this color eyes and they're offering twenty five thousand dollars for their egg whereas they'd offer three thousand dollars for someone who is who went to some community college or no college and works just at a mcdonald's or something like that and the objectification there Right, and that usually the people on the incredibly high end of that pay scale are blonde hair, blue-eyed people, which is terrifying. Precisely, Eugenics exactly. at its finest. Yes, eugenics, yes. exactly. That's the word I was looking for. So, I, I, and then that begs, going back to what Mandy said, like, um, as far as creating this, uh, what Mandy was implying, I, I, is that creating this objectification mentality, like, should we mm-hmm. allow this, or should we, not even should we allow this, I don't think that legality needs to be a part of this, but... Um, mm-hmm. Should we allow ourselves to objectify the people who are consenting to be objectified on a greater scale if it's creating this idea that, yeah, girls at Yale look like this and this is the mm-hmm. way that they should be represented and, and, and objectifying everyone who goes to Yale, generalizing them that way. For sure. Well, and I was using the, the Ivy League or the tennis example because I thought it was small enough that it would, and that the, the specific boycotting, et cetera, was explicit enough that it was very clear to the women that did decide to sign up that they were participating against the will of other women, where I think it's less obvious how participating in any form of reproducible porn lends itself to objectification. Right. Like, I think that's not a clear connection, whereas I think the other one was a clearer connection. I would agree And so that's why I was using that example. Also, as far as eugenics goes there's a growing industry for gender selection. Mm-hmm. And oh. really interestingly, the majority of selected genders, people that go in for gender selection are selecting women. Huh. 60%, I think, of people that undergo a gender selection procedure are selecting to have girls. That's fascinating. I That's wonder interesting. Why. I wonder why that is. Well, yeah. if I had to venture a guess, it would actually be not good. It would be objectification and the idea that a girl's a pretty princess, that's a delicate, beautiful toy that you get to have. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. In the book The Ethical Slut, Dosie and Jane, I don't remember where it is, what page it is, and exactly what it says, but it kind of blew my mind when they discussed the idea that with the population growth, it is not necessary for us to reproduce. And thus, it's kind of this idea that when we're reproducing, and this is this is kind of crude, and I don't mean it to. 
this is just kind of the way they brought it up, is it's kind of like the way you would have a puppy. You don't necessarily need to have that child, but you want a baby. And it comes back to the eugenics thing, the wanting a girl, wanting a pretty princess. I, I mean, it's, it's a, the whole thing is objectification. And I think it's a very, um, very toxic form of objectification. That's a good point. I mean, it's hard to have a child without objectifying that child, having hopes, dreams, True. and ideas of what that kid will be like when mm -hmm. it's an embryo that could be anything. Right. Or even when it's a toddler. Yeah. Yeah. Even when yeah. it's a toddler. At any stage, right? Right. I mean, I definitely, I definitely speak of my children, obje like, objectively sometimes. I, you know, my daughter's my softball player. Mm-hmm. You know, my son's my artist, and it, it's... I don't mean any ill will. No. But is that is that objectification or is that abstraction? Um huh. Let me let me clarify that real quick. In art, we the reason that people consider photographs art is that they're an abstraction. You actually choose what part you're gonna see. It's a flattened image, it's not a full wavefront, and you cut out a lot of context around it, right? You create this framing mechanism and you flatten this very complex thing into one specific angle at one specific moment. And so I think, like, when you're talking to someone and you have to relate your child to them, are you saying my softball player because, like, that's the thing about them that matters to you? Or is it that's just a convenient way of conveying the most information in an abstraction that you have available to you? You know, and, and I never thought about it that, that way. That I agree. And I think that the only... that What I would do, I would consider abstraction. The only time that that would be objectification is when you hear the stories about like um the the dad that lives vicariously through his son the football player and you know he right. that's the only thing he sees him as is the star quarterback you know what i mean yeah yeah well that was it big waves now on the internet again is reminding us that 10 years ago there was a kid called tiny hercules or little hercules that was like an eight-year-old bodybuilder whose dad apparently he only ever ate powders that his dad put in liquids and he had like eight hours a day of physical training until he was wow. 12. Oh, wow. Like, that kind of thing. Right. Like, that's super objectifying. And they created a what you were going to be. They packaged it. They sold it. They were well, got rich off of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was yes. just about that's to say, that's like example. child abuse right there. So I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yes. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, for that's sure. way past objectification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a well, little, it's, it's, little the, it's, it's, it's pure objectification, yes. right? It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the taken to the absolute extreme yeah. of the same concept. Yes. But right, right. So it would be it would be objectification if this sentence: your daughter goes to quit, and you go, "You can't quit. You're my mm. softball right. player." Yeah. I would agree with that. Then you have objectified your daughter. Yeah. But I really want to to drill down more into exactly what objectification in polyamory and <laughs> yeah, objectification in polyamory yeah. for sure which we've danced all the way around but <laughs> which we have danced everywhere but <laughs> which i honestly i'm very interested in objectification in polyamory i feel like i have not been much a part of the poly community as much as i could have been this last year and a half that i've been poly and so i don't know that i can offer a whole lot of information to others about what I've seen in objectification because I've seen so, um, I've had such little experience with the community. I've only had the relationships I've participated in for the most part. So I'm really interested to hear mm -hmm. what you two say about the objectification and uh, in the poly community. Well, I think it was uh, you earlier, Sarah, that said um, 
something along the lines of when a person fulfills specific needs, that that was part of your definition of objectification. Am I correct? Mm, I believe so. So in the polyamory community, we have a tendency to collect them all. Like Michael and I talked about before about the whole Pokemon mentality. Pokemon. Yes. Um, and so that that is a, a clear cut way in polyamory where where people objectify people this that partner is for a specific need. Right. When they say that sentence, I have different partners for different needs. Right. And they say things like, I'm looking for a partner who can do this. X, yeah. And uh, they fill the specific I need. I see. Okay. And I think that's that's why that always sort of not always, I, I hate wish I wish always, but relatively quickly started to bug me when I was reading people talking about that sort of thing, which is like, how can you relate to a complete human individual with all of their complexities as someone that fills a need? Well... Like, there's no way that that's a useful way to relate to somebody. Oh, maybe I'm just a horrible person, but my thought is, why would you get involved in any relationship unless it's fulfilling a need? So I'd like to kind of be the devil's advocate there, because I understand objectifying and devaluing anyone to just that need would totally be a an irresponsible and unethical way to treat any, any individual. But I would say that the, the whole purpose behind any relationship is to fill a certain need or needs, plural. But if you're if you're only with that partner to fulfill that need or needs, then that's objectification. Okay. Let's start at the worst and then move that back to the, the, the more murky version. So this sentence, I have one partner who has a slim waist and I want to have at least one partner with big breasts. Mm-hmm. So I'm dating, but I'm only looking for someone with big breasts. Yes. I see where that would, that is a very obvious objectification of, uh, of body parts. There was a word, a reduction to body type of objectification right. that Langton mentioned. Mm-hmm. So similarly, we have a really great relationship, but our family doesn't have enough money Let's try and date somebody who has a really good oh, job. Okay, I see. Yes. But if that person leaves their job, are they still worth dating? Right. Now, are you dating them as a person or are you dating them as a job? Right, okay. And that goes back to your waiter example. When you're in a relationship, needs are getting filled. But there's a difference between having a laundry list of specific and this goes to fungible qualities that you need the person to have in order to be dateable. Mm-hmm. And knowing that you would like to connect with more people and understanding that in connecting with people, some of your needs are going to get met. Oh, I see. So it's the intent. Very similar to the unicorn hunting. Yeah, okay. Where my husband and I are looking for a bisexual, big, beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. You know, fairly interchangeable. Right. Right. Right, okay. Because if that person happens to not be bisexual, they're not going to work. Right. And if they stop being attracted to one of us, they're not going to work. Right. So then you start not really recognizing their autonomy and start getting into the whole list. So they've been reduced to a specific quality, also specific body parts. You're not respecting their autonomy or their ability to make decisions separate from you. Uh, Or specific actions as well. I've heard heard people in the polyamorous community say that they want to find a partner that does X in bed because the partner that they have does not. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I see what you're saying. I've actually personally have experienced that myself. Again, being new to the poly community, I I have my own little trips trip ups I'm going to have. One thing that I did when I was in a relationship last year was I wanted to participate 
and stretch a, a sexual boundary that I had and kind of play with that and determine where I wanted that boundary to be. And so I talked to my partner about this and I said, hey, this is something I want to try. He's like, I'm absolutely not interested in that. Find someone else if you want to do that, which is totally fine. But in retrospect now, I see where that led me to objectify to a point people that I started to date and started to see. It's like, hmm, will this person be interested in that? Well, I'm not sure if I want to date them unless they're not. I'm ashamed to say that that is something that I used as a screening when I went out to meet people. So I can see why now this would be something that would need to be discussed in the poly community, the objectification right. thing, with the, uh, the po Pokemon poly. But if you had gone about it a different way, yes. if you had gone about right. it as like, I, I want to stretch this sexual boundary, so I, I want to find someone, maybe not necessarily to date and have a relationship with, but somebody who will consensually stretch this boundary with me, and you, you've negotiated that that's what is going on, that would not have been a, uh, mm -hmm. objectification. Consent. It would oh, still true. be objectification. It would be consenting objectification. Right. But it would, it yes. It would be okay, good yeah, objectification. Okay, yeah. Right. So, yeah, if you, when I, when I say good, neutral, not morally problematic, right? So, neutral, right. Yes. If, yes. if you went on the dates or put on your profile for dating or when you, you know, really early on, you were like, hey, I am interested in looking for other partners, but I'm mostly interested in stretching the sexual boundary. So, this is what I'm doing. And this is what I need from the person I want to date right now. And it's going to be about this one thing. And if that grows into a relationship, that's great. But it really is about this one thing. Then they have the opportunity to consent or say no. But if you go on a normal date and say, oh, I'm looking to date, you get on OkCupid and you say, I'm poly. I'm interested in other people. and Or you meet through your friends or through the poly community. And really in the background of your head, you're just trying to get to, well, are they into my king? I see. Right. Okay. Then you're not treating that so, person like a person because they're treating you like a generic date and you're looking for one quality. I see. Okay. I guess I didn't totally objectify then, so I, I have room for growth. <laughs> well, and this is, but this is right. This is, this is complex and difficult, right? All these sort of subtle accidental objectifications that we do, that's the reason that this podcast even exists because it's not expected that it's something right. that you would notice. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that the objectification in, in our culture, as much as it has changed into we do it a lot less as a as a, a society, I've, I've noticed, comparing movies that I watched when I was a kid or that were created in the 50s and movies that are created now, mm -hmm. the, we still have this objectification-type mentality when it comes to romantic entanglements and pursuing romantic interests. For sure, and one that led to us doing just objectification today because I originally wanted to do a question about whether or not romantic love is constructed by, you know, the heteropatriarchy that we live in is intrinsically objectifying and how bad of a thing that is. But then I realized nobody really knew what I meant when I said objectification. <laughs> and so we're doing yes. an episode on that. Oh, oh, that was what I wanted to say. As, you know, a linguist who constantly wants to remind everybody that language is way more vague than we realize, I have this visual, for lack of a better term, that I use, which is when I hear people using a loaded term and I see two people, I, I picture two people looking at each other, both saying the word and then having this like cone of meaning that comes off the back of the word away from the word that's just massive in opposite directions. So that mm -hmm. like when you say objectification and I say objectification, and we don't sit around and discuss for an hour, apparently, what objectification means to us, 
were on totally different wavelengths, right? All three of us had very right. different meanings for that word right. when we started doing this, right? And so that's oh, yeah. and and so that's sort of the part of the the problem, right? And 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 to some extent, you have to ask like it's, it's so fr- confusing. Like, is it really objectifying someone to? play a sex scene where they're called by their body part if they ask you to do that. Isn't the fact that they asked you to do that, that you got consent, that you had a discussion with them, treating them as way more than a body part? You wouldn't have that discussion with a body part. Good point. Um, I don't know. I would still, I would just say that's consensual objectification. Because you're still, you're still itemizing them. You're, you're still treating that person as an object. Can they safe word out? Just consent, they've just consented to it. Yeah, but they could. They can safe word out, right? Right. But well, I mean, that's not a way that you would treat happening. an object. It's still happening. I don't know. Yeah. Right, well, and this, is, and this is the beauty of language. And this is the reason mm-hmm. that objectification has become... Like, one of the texts I was reading was talking about objectification literally just being a word that people use to mean almost problematic now. Like, the people will say, like, I think that's objectifying to just mean, I think that's morally problematic. Like there's yeah. such a range of things that people will stick objectification on. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, agree with that. I think it's definitely more specific than that. Well, but... I would agree that I've seen people use it that way. I wouldn't agree that they should, because I think at a certain right. point you know, there's a, a usefulness of language. But I, my my point though is that that's that's really more of a question, not so much of what's really true, because as we know from these articles and from this discussion, it means all of these things to different people. It's right. more a question of when we're going to have that discussion, maybe set that term. <laughs> so we want to use it for, you know, when you see something as just a body part. I don't know. I mean, I've engaged in the, you know, the kind of objectification play that we're talking about. And I feel like in my mind during that experience, my partner's experience was incredibly important to me. And I, I, I think that's not objectification in that sense. I think extending objectification... I wonder if extending objectification into non-damaging places as a description, if there couldn't be a better description and if that doesn't sort of almost hurt the value of the term when it is then leveled later. Because then when you say something like, oh no, he's objectifying her, people have to be like, wait, good or bad? Well, I I think that it can be used as a positive and a negative. Mm -hmm. I think that people just assume objectification is negative. Because I've I've been in mm-hmm. in negotiated sexual scenes of consensual non consent, and I think that we were both objectifying each other because what was getting the other one off was the fact it wasn't because I was Mandy it was because I was a victim. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and what was was getting me off was that he was an assailant mm-hmm. and not my partner right does that make sense so i I still think it's objectification because it's not the it it was the it it wasn't the the actual person it was what they were representing but no and um, i'm not i mean i know there are going to be counter examples what i'm going to say but i'm just in your case that person though was a partner at the time that person was a partner correct all right so because i i see what your argument here is is that your positions were fungible in that sense, right? So any victim would have been attractive to him. Any assailant would have been attractive to you. But I wonder if that's true. I feel like it was important that he was a trusted person and not just any assailant. I feel like it was important for him the other way around. Well, it it was important because, like you said, you could safe word out. But, But the thing that was 
that was important in the scene and for mm-hmm. for safety purposes. But what was getting our rocks off was the was the objectification part. Was the part of the assailant and the victim. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the partner that was doing it. Well, but but it was it was the idea of what was happening. I'm gonna push back on that one more time, and then we'll I'll drop it. But so was it, was it? But but I think that it still included a sense of the of the safety of it, right? I mean, I feel like if you actually got assaulted on the street, you would not enjoy it, right? So that there is. It's, it wasn't simply being a victim. It was being a victim in a safe space uh, with a safe mm-hmm. person. And that those things were in your mind in a certain way that made it attractive. That it wouldn't be attractive if it was completely non-consensual, someone popped out of the woodwork. You wouldn't like like that and then later be upset about it. You just wouldn't like it. Right. right. I just still think that the that the it was the act and mm-hmm. the the roles that were being played is is what was sexy about it, is what was attractive about it, as opposed to that specific person mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah, and like I said, I think it's just an interesting question about how we want to use the word more than... Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. That it's, it comes down to the way that we, we view the word objectification and what it means to us um, in this particular context. Right, and I, but I was—I mean, I was just trying to explain that it's not always in a negative space. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I would—I right. would definitely agree. Given that example that you just—you just gave, which is an example that I kind of gave earlier, that objectification. Right. I personally feel I would like to to play with some objectifying mm-hmm. type behavior in a kink setting, which is probably too much to offer in a podcast episode. Sorry. <laughs> not not in this podcast. That's in fine. retrospect. Yeah, in yes. In this podcast is probably safe. And I'm using a pseudonym. So who knows? So <laughs> there you go. But I, I think that there is something that is sexy to being objectified in some contexts. Personally, I think that that's kind of sexy. So I think that Mandy, you're absolutely right in that it is an objectification and that it's not a bad thing. Right. If I want to participate in an objectification play and I have a safe word and it is something that we both consent to, we both have safe words for it, and it's something that gets us off and that makes us feel good or we have the anticipated outcome or whatever, then that's uh, how, how is that bad? And then it comes back to what you said, Michael, earlier about whether or not it's still to be determined if this is psychologically sane, but until there's evidence of the opposite, why not? Yeah, I don't know. It's really, I don't know. I'm really, I really don't know. I think, I I know that people use objectification, honestly, to mean treated as having any characteristic of an object. I think that I'm inclined to say that I would like to use objectification, like going forward, not like for this discussion, because we're just discussing it here, but going forward to really mean it in the, the existentialist sense of denying someone their existence as a living possibility. Because I, I, I don't know that... I think it's easier just to say treated as having characteristics of an object or treated like an object or playing like an object. Because, I mean, I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking, all right, so in a scene where you are engaging in objective play or treating like an object play, right, does denial of subjectivity exist, right? So here the, from the encyclopedia it says that's the treatment of a person as something whose experiences or feelings are not taken into account. But of course they are, Right. If you used your safe word, or if afterwards you'd had a horrible time, or you were really upset, or you were miserable, your partner would be unhappy. Mm-hmm. They would be worried. They're concerned for your experience. Right. Ownership 
ownership here means real ownership, like actually could sell you to some other human being. No, right? Violability, their boundaries are not being respected. Well, they have a safe word, that's a boundary. You already went through all the rules of the play, what specifically you're allowed to do and not do. Those are all boundaries and they all have to be respected. That's not happening. Fungibility. Anybody who's ever tried to get a really good play partner for a kink scene knows people are not fungible. <laughs> they are that definitely is a hard not interchangeable. Thing to come by. <laughs> <laughs> super difficult to get. That's so much work to get that right. So that is not an interchangeable thing. Inertness, treating the person as if they have a lack of agency. Again, all of their agency has been negotiated. Super consent based. Denial of autonomy, treating them as they have no autonomy. Again, self-determining. Are they self-determining? Of course they are. They put themselves into the scene. They signed all the documents. They said yes. They got a safe word. But I think that if you go back to inertia, it, it, it is that. It's just negotiated. Yeah, but I wonder, I, I don't, I mean, like, and again, again, it's how you want to use the word, I think. Because you're, you're adding a, you're adding like a, you're pushing it back a level. Because you're saying like, well, I negotiated that I'm not going to be treated like a person. Right. Right. But I would respond that negotiated slavery isn't slavery. Right. Like it's not actually slavery. Right. Right. Like on the, like and, and we and it's interesting because I feel like on the one for ownership, nobody pushes back on that one where ownership says. Right. Yeah. No. The person you could literally sell like for money. No one goes, well, if we had negotiated BDSM style fetish style slavery, that would that would be number six. Well, it wouldn't be because I can't literally sell a kink slave to someone else for money. And they have no rights, and that person takes them to another side of the country no matter what they want. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, but does it have and, to be that negotiated literal? Negotiated as it is. Does it have to be that literal, though? Because you have DS dynamics where, you, where you've got, you know, like, a, like an MS relationship, like a master-slave relationship in kink. And mm-hmm. there is a, is a consensual ownership. Mm-hmm. So does it have to be literal where, you know, you can't literally sell this person to another person, but it's still, I feel like it's still objectification because you, that person is still your quote-unquote slave. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, and again, in common usage, it clearly is. I, I mean, I think there's no doubt that the way that objectification is used it includes assumed behaviors, agreed behaviors, tried-on behaviors, etc. I don't think there's any question that that's how the word gets used a lot. I'm just sort of pushing back on if that's the most accurately descriptive way to use that word, if that cuts down on disambiguation disambiguation, or makes it worse or is somehow more useful than saying it differently. Right. Like using a different term for the kind that's consensual. Although, of course, you could just do consensual, consensual objectification, non-consensual objectification, like we do with a lot of other things. Right. And that's, I, mean, I think that's kind of the point of the conversation is to, we're kind of figuring out ways where objectification isn't always bad and, and objective, ways that objectification is always bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that we can, we can absolutely say that in the BDSM kink community that objectification is sometimes a good thing. I have a question about that, actually, real quick. So let's, let's flip this and I'll assume that I agree, and we'll assume that I agree with your earlier statement, that it's objectification, it's just consensual objectification. Earlier we talked about how objectifying people as a habit leaks into other interrelationships with people. Mm -hmm. Do you think that consensual objectification has that same risk? That people who spend a lot of time doing consensual objectification are still practicing objectification 
which bleeds into non-consensual spaces. Oh, absolutely. Since you think that all forms of objectification... Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Can you, can you because, on that? Well, because, like, like we talked about the, the porn industry in, in Playboy, um, you know, mm. that that is consensual objectification, you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning. And then right. once you make it... Um, I don't want to say a habit, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can lead into non-consensual objectification where you're where you Mm -hmm. do end up doing it to other people without their consent without that negotiation you know without them being paid for their pictures (laughs) so um yeah i absolutely think that even consensual objectification can lead to non-consensual objectification even with the same person Mm -hmm. yeah in the kink and bdsm community right specifically yes yeah, and I'm actually going to make the claim that I had that problem next time. <laughs> so that's my that's my question about about it. That will officially bring us to the close for today. Join us next time when we talk about uh, how objectification creeps in creeps into romantic relationships and what that means for polyamory, the group that claims that we're multiply romantic. Uh, a great way. Thank you for listening. All right. Yes, thank you very much for having no, me. And thank you, yes, Mandy, for coming on today and oh, yeah, right. Thanks, in, Mandy, for coming. in our discussion here and giving us your, your perspective on this.